Chapter 4 of Strange Pages from Family Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. Chapter 4 Strange Banquets. O'Rourke's noble feast will ne'er be forgot by those who were there or those who were not. In the above words, the Dean of St. Patrick has immortalised an Irish festival of the eighteenth century, and some such memory will long cling to many a family or historic banquet, which, like the tragic one depicted in Macbeth, where the ghost of the murdered Banquo makes its uncanny appearance, or that remarkable feast described by Lord Lytton, where Zanoni drinks with impunity the poisoned cup, remarking to the Prince, I pledge you even in this wine has been the scene of some unusual or extraordinary occurrence. At one time or another, the wedding-feast has witnessed many a strange and truly romantic occurrence, in some instances the result of unrequited love or faithless pledges, as happened at the marriage-feast of the second Viscount Cullen. At the early age of sixteen he had been betrothed to Elizabeth Trentham, a great heiress, but in the course of his travels abroad he formed a strong attachment to an Italian lady of rank, whom he afterwards deserted for his first betrothed. In due time arrangements were made for their marriage, but on the eventful day, while the wedding party were feasting in the great hall at Rushton, a strange carriage, drawn by six horses, drew up, and forth stepped a dark lady, who, at once entering the hall and seizing a goblet, to punish his falsehood and pride, to the astonishment of all present, drank perdition to the bridegroom, and, having uttered a curse upon his bride, to the effect that she would live in wretchedness and die in want, promptly disappeared to be traced no further. No small consternation was caused by this unlooked-for contretemps, but the young Viscount made light of it to his fair bride dispelling her alarm by explanations which satisfied her natural curiosity. But, it is said, in after-days, this unpleasant episode created an unfavourable impression in her mind, and at times made her give way to feelings of a despondent character. As events turned out, the curse of her marriage-day was, in a great measure, fulfilled. It is true, she became a prominent beauty of the court of Charles the Second, and was painted with less than his usual amount of drapery, by Sir Peter Lely. It is recorded also that she twice gave an asylum to Monmouth, in the room at Rushton, still known as the Duke's room. But, living unhappily with her husband, she died, notwithstanding her enormous fortune, in comparative penury, at Kettering, at a great age, as recently as the year 1713. A curious tale of love and deception is told of Bulgarden Hall, once, according to Ferrers, in his History of Limerick, the most magnificent seat in the south of Ireland, erected by the Right Honourable George Evans, who was created Baron Carberry, County of Cork, on the 9th of May, 1715. A family tradition proclaims him to have been noted for great personal attractions, so much so that Queen Anne, struck by his appearance, took a ring from her finger at one of her levees, and presented it to him, a ring preserved as an heirloom at Laxton Hall, Northamptonshire. In 1741 he married Grace, the daughter and eventually heiress 
of Sir Ralph Freke, of Castle Freke, in the county of Cork, by whom he had four sons and the same number of daughters, and it was George Evans, the eldest son and heir, who became the chief personage in the following extraordinary marriage fraud. It appears that at an early age he fell in love with the beautiful daughter of his host, Colonel Stamer, who was only too ready to sanction such an alliance, but, despite the brilliant prospects which this contemplated marriage opened to the young lady, she turned a deaf ear to any mention of it, for she loved another. As far as her parents could judge, she seemed inexorable, and they could only allay the suspense of the expectant lover by assuring him that their daughter's natural timidity alone prevented an immediate answer to his suit. But what their feelings of surprise were on the following day can be imagined when Miss Stamer announced to her parents her willingness to marry George Evans. It was decided that there should be no delay, and the marriage day was at once fixed. At this period of our social life, the wedding banquet was generally devoted to wine and feasting, while the marriage itself did not take place till the evening. And, according to custom, sobriety at these bridal feasts was, we are told, a positive violation of all good breeding, and the guests would have thought themselves highly dishonoured had the bridegroom escaped scatheless from the wedding banquet. Accordingly, half unconscious of passing events, George Evans was conducted to the altar, where the marriage knot was indissolubly tied. But, as soon as he had recovered from the effects of the bridal feast, he discovered, to his intense horror and dismay, that the bride he had taken was not the woman of his choice, in short, he was the victim of a cheat. Indignant at this cruel imposture, he ascertained that the plot emanated from the woman who, till then, had been the ideal of his soul, and that she had substituted her veiled sister Anne for herself at the altar. The remainder of this strange affair is briefly told. George Evans had one and only one interview with his wife and thus addressed her in the following words. Madam, you have attained your end. I need not say how you bear my name, and for the sake of your family I acknowledge you as my wife. You shall receive an income from me suitable to your situation. This, probably, is all you cared for with regard to me, and you and I shall meet no more in this world. He would allow no explanation, and almost immediately left his home and country, never to meet again the woman who had so basely betrayed him. The glory of Bulgarden Hall was gone. Its young master, in order to quench his sorrow and bury his disgust, gave way to every kind of dissipation, and died its victim in 1769. And, writes Sir Bernard Burke, from the period of its desertion by its luckless master, Bulgarden Hall gradually sank into ruin, and to mark its site naught remains but the foundation walls and a solitary stone bearing the family arms. A strange incident, of which it is said no satisfactory explanation has ever yet been forthcoming, happened during the wedding banquet of Alexander III at Jedborough Castle, a weird and gruesome episode, which Edgar Poe expanded into his Mask of the Red Death. The story goes that in the midst of the festivities, a mysterious figure glided amongst the astonished guests, tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave, 
the mask which concealed the visage resembling the countenance of a stiffened corpse. "'Who dares,' demands the royal host, "'to insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements.' But when the awe-struck revellers took courage and grasped the figure, they gasped in unutterable horror on finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handed with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form, vanishing as suddenly as it had appeared. All sorts of theories have been suggested to account for this mysterious figure, but no satisfactory solution has been forthcoming an incident of which, it may be remembered, Haywood has given a graphic picture. In the mid-revels, the first ominous night of their espousals, when the room shone bright with lighted tapers, the king and queen leading the curious measures, lords and ladies treading the self-same strains, the king looks back by chance, and spies a strange intruder fill the dance, namely, a mere anatomy, quite bare, his naked limbs both without flesh and hair, as he deciphers death, who stalks about, keeping true measure till the dance be out. Inexplicable, however, as the presence of this unearthly, mysterious personage was felt to be by all engaged in the marriage revels, it was regarded as the forerunner of some approaching catastrophe. Prophets and seers lost no time in turning the affair to their own interest, and amongst them Thomas the Rhymer predicted that the 16th of March would be the stormiest day that ever was witnessed in Scotland. But when the supposed ill-fated day arrived, it was the very reverse of stormy, being still and mild, and public opinion began to ridicule the prophetic utterance of Thomas the Rhymer, when, to the amazement and consternation of all, there came the appalling news, The King is dead. Whereupon Thomas the Rhymer ejaculated, that is the storm which I meant, and there was never tempest, which will bring to Scotland more ill luck. The disappearance of the heir to a property, which has always been a favourite subject with novelists and romance writers, has occasionally happened in real life, and a Shropshire legend relates how, long ago, the heir of the house of Corbett went away to the wars, and remained absent so many years that his family, as in the case of Enoch Arden, gave up all hope of ever seeing him again, and eventually mourned for him as dead. His younger brother succeeded to the property, and prepared to take to himself a wife, and reign in the old family hall. But on the wedding day, in the midst of the feasting, a pilgrim came to the gate asking hospitality and alms. He was bidden to sit down and share the feast, but scarcely was the banquet ended when the pilgrim revealed himself as the long-lost elder brother. The disconcerted bridegroom acknowledged him at once, but the latter generously resigned the greater part of the estates to his brother, and, sooner than mar the prospects of the newly married couple, he lived a life of obscurity upon one small manor. There seems, however, to be a very small basis of fact for this story. The Corbetts of Shropshire, one branch of whom are owners of Morton Corbett, are among the very oldest of the many old Shropshire families. They trace their descent back to Corbett the Norman, whose sons, Robert and Roger, appear in Doomsday Book 
as holding large estates under Roger Earl of Shrewsbury. The grandsons of Roger Corbett were Thomas Corbett of Wattlesborough and Robert Corbett. Thomas, who was evidently the elder of the two, it seems went beyond seas, leaving his lands in the custody of his brother Robert. Both brothers left descendants, but the elder branch of the family never attained to such rank and prosperity as the younger one. Hence, perhaps, the origin of the legend. But Morton Corbett did not come into the possession of the family till long after this date. Whatever truth there may be in this old tradition, there is every reason to believe that some of the worst tragedies recorded in family history have been due to jealousy, and an extraordinary instance of such unnatural feeling was that displayed by the second wife of Sir Robert Scott, of Thirlstane, one of the most distinguished cadets of the great house of Buccleuch. Distracted with mortification that her husband's rich inheritance would descend to his son by his first wife, she secretly resolved to compass the destruction of her stepson, and determined to execute her hateful purpose at the festivities held in honour of the young laird's twentieth birthday. Having taken into her confidence one John Lally, the family piper, this wretched man procured three adders, from which he selected the parts replete with the most deadly poison, and after grinding them to fine powder, Lady Thirlstane mixed them in a bottle of wine. Previous to the commencement of the birthday feast, the young laird having called for wine to drink the healths of the workmen, who had just completed the mason work of the new castle of Gamesclough, his future residence, the piper Lally filled a silver cup from the poisoned bottle, which the ill-fated youth hastily drank off. So potent was the poison, that the young laird died within an hour, and a feeling of horror seized the birthday guests as to who could have done such a foul deed. But the father seems to have had his suspicions, and causing a bugle to be blown as a signal for all the family to assemble in a castle court, he inquired, "'Are we all here?' A voice answered, "'All but the piper, John Lally.' These words, it is said, sounded like a knell in Sir Robert's ear, and the truth was manifest to him. But, unwilling to make a public example of his own wife, he adopted a somewhat unique method of vengeance, and publicly proclaimed that, as he could not bestow the estate on his son while alive, he would spend it upon him when dead. Accordingly, the body of his son was embalmed with the most costly drugs, and lay in state for a year and a day, during which time Sir Robert kept open house, feasting all who chose to be his guests. Lady Thirlstane, meanwhile, being imprisoned in a vault of the castle, and fed upon bread and water. During the last three days of this extraordinary feast, writes Sir Bernard Burke, the crowds were immense. It was as if the whole of the south of Scotland was assembled at Thirlstane. Pots of the richest and rarest wine were carried into the fields, their ends were knocked out with hatchets, and the liquor was carried about in stoops. The burn of Thirlstane literally ran with wine. Sir Robert died soon afterwards, and left his family in utter destitution, his wife dying in absolute beggary. Thus was avenged the crime of this cruel and unprincipled woman, whose fatal jealousy caused the ruin of the family. 
Political intrigue, again, has been the origin of many an act of treachery, done under the semblance of hospitality, or given rise to strange incidents. To go back to early times, it seems that Edward the Confessor had long indulged a suspicion that Earl Godwin, who had in the first instance accused Queen Emma of having caused the death of her son, was himself implicated in that transaction. It so happened that the king and a large concourse of prelates and nobility were holding a large dinner at Winchester, in honour of the Easter festival, when the butler, in bringing in a dish, slipped, but recovered his balance by making adroit use of his other foot. "'Thus does brother assist brother,' exclaimed Earl Godwin, thinking to be witty at the butler's expense. "'And thus might I have been now assisted by my Alfred, if Earl Godwin had not prevented it,' replied the king, for the earl's remark had recalled to his mind the suspicion he had long entertained of the earl having been concerned in Prince Alfred's death. Resenting the king's words, the earl, holding up the morsel which he was about to eat, uttered a great oath, and in the name of God expressed a wish that the morsel might choke him, if he had in any way been concerned in that murder. Accordingly, he there and then put the morsel into his mouth, and attempted to swallow it. But his efforts were in vain, it stuck fast in his throat, immovable upward or downward. His respiration failed, his eyes became fixed, his countenance convulsed, and in a minute more he fell dead under the table. Edward, convinced of the earl's guilt, and seeing divine justice manifested, and remembering, it is said, with bitterness the days past when he had given a willing ear to the calumnies spread about his innocent mother, cried out in an indignant voice, "'Carry away that dog and bury him in the high road!' But the body was deposited by the earl's cousin in the cathedral." Several accounts have been written of that terrible banquet to which the Earl of Douglas was invited by Sir Alexander Livingstone and the Chancellor Crichton, who craftily dissembled their intentions, to sup at the royal table in the castle of Edinburgh. The Earl was foolhardy enough to accept the ill-fated invitation, and shortly after he had taken his place at the festive board, the head of a black bull, the certain omen in those days in Scotland of immediate death, was placed on the table. The Earl, anticipating treachery, instantly sprang to his feet, and lost no time in making every effort to escape. But no chance was given him to do so, and with his younger brother he was hurried along into the courtyard of the castle, and, after being subjected to a mock trial, he was beheaded. In the back court of the castle that lieth to the west. The death of the young Earl and his untimely fate were the subjects of lament in one of the ballads of the time. Edinburgh Castle, town and tower, God grant them sink for sin, and that even for the black dinner Earl Douglas gat therein. This emphatic malediction is cited by Hume of Godscroft in his History of the House of Douglas, as referring to William, sixth Earl of Douglas, a youth of eighteen, and Hume, speaking of this transaction, says, with becoming indignation, It is sure the people did abhor it, execrating the very place where it was done in detestation of the fact, of which the memory remaineth yet to our days in these words. Many similar stories are recorded in the history of the past. 
the worst form of treachery oftentimes lurking beneath the festive cup. And in times of commotion, when suspicion and mistrust made men feel insecure, even when entertained in the banqueting hall of some powerful host, it is not surprising that great persons had their food tasted by those who were supposed to have made themselves acquainted with its wholesomeness. But this practice could not always afford security when the taster was ready to sacrifice his own life, as in King John, Act 5, Scene 6. Hubert. The king, I fear, is poisoned by a monk. I left him almost speechless. Bastard. How did he take it? Who did taste to him? Hubert. A monk, I tell you, a resolved villain. But in modern days, one of the most unnatural tragedies on record was the murder of Sir John Goodyear, Foote's maternal uncle, by his brother Captain Goodyear, a naval officer. In the year 1740, the two brothers dined at a friend's house near Bristol. For a long time they had been on bad terms, owing to certain money transactions. But at the dinner table, a reconciliation was, to all appearance, made between them. But it was a most terrible piece of underhand treachery, for, on leaving that dinner table, Sir John was waylaid on his return home by some men from his brother's vessel, acting by his brother's authority, carried on board and deliberately strangled. Captain Goodyear not only unconcernedly looking on, but actually furnishing the rope with which this fearful crime was committed. One of the strangest parts of the one of the strangest parts of this terrible tale, Foote used to relate, was the fact that on the night the murder was committed, he arrived at his father's house in Truro, and was kept awake for some time by the softest and sweetest strains of music he had ever heard. At first he fancied it might be a serenade, got up by some of the family to welcome him home. But not being able to discover any trace of the musicians, he came to the conclusion that he was deceived by his own imagination. Shortly afterwards, however, he learnt that the murder had been committed at the same hour of the same night as he had been haunted by the mysterious sounds. In after days, he often spoke of this curious occurrence, regarding it as a supernatural warning, a conviction which he retained till his death. But... Strange and varied as are the scenes that have taken place at the banquet, whether great or small, such acts of fratricide have been rare, although, according to a family tradition relating to Osbaldston Hall, a similar tragedy once happened at a family banquet. There is one room in the old hall, whose walls are smeared with several red marks, which, it is said, can never be obliterated. These stains have some resemblance to blood and are generally supposed to have been caused when, many years ago, one of the family was brutally murdered. The story commonly current is that there was once a great family gathering at Osbaldston Hall, at which every member of the family was present. The feast passed off satisfactorily, and the liquor was flowing freely round when, unfortunately, family differences began to be discussed. These soon caused angry recriminations, and at length, two of the company challenged each other to mortal combat. Friends interfered, and, by the judicious intervention on their part, 
the quarrel seemed to be made up. But soon afterwards the two accidentally met in this room, and Thomas Osbaldston drew his sword and murdered his brother-in-law without resistance. For this crime he was deemed a felon and forfeited his lands. Ever since that ill-fated day the room has been haunted. Tradition says that the ghost of the murdered man continues to haunt the scene of the conflict, and, during the silent hours of the night, it may be seen passing from the room with uplifted hands, and with the appearance of blood streaming from a wound in the breast. But, turning to incidents of a less tragic nature, an amusing story is told of the Earl of Hopetown, who, when he could not induce a certain Scottish laird named Dundas to sell his old family residence known as The Tower, which was on the very verge of his own beautiful pleasure-grounds, tried to lead him on to a more expensive style of living than that to which he had been accustomed, thinking thereby he might run into debt and be compelled to sell his property. Accordingly, Dundas was frequently invited to Hopetown House, and on one occasion his lordship invited himself and a fashionable shooting-party to the tower, congratulating himself on the whole which a few dinners like this would make in the old lair's rental. But, as soon as the covers were removed from the dishes, no small chagrin was caused to Lord Hopetown and his friends when their eyes rested on a goodly array of alternate herrings and potatoes spread from the top to the bottom. Dundas at the same time inviting his guest to pledge him in a bumper of excellent whisky. Drinking jocularly to his lordship's health, he humorously said, "'It won't do, my lord, it won't do. But whenever you or your guests will honour my poor hall of Stang Hill Tower with your presence at this hour, I promise you no worse fare than now set before you the best and fattest salt herrings that the fourth can produce, and the strongest mountain dew. To this I beg that your lordship and your honoured friends may do ample justice. It is needless to say that Lord Hopetown never dined again at Stang Hill Tower, but some time after, when Dundas was on his deathbed, he advised his son to make the best terms he could with Lord Hopetown, remarking, he will sooner or later have our little property. An exchange was made highly advantageous to the Dundas family, the estate of Aythry being made over to them. A curious and humorous narrative is told of General Dayel, a noted persecutor of the Covenanters. In the course of his continental service, he had been brought into the immediate circle of the German court, and one day had the honour to be a guest at a splendid imperial banquet, where, as part of his state, the German emperor was waited on by the great feudal dignitaries of the empire, one of whom was the Duke of Modena, the head of the illustrious house of Este. After his appointment by Charles II as commander-in-chief in Scotland, he was invited by the Duke of York, afterwards James II, and then residing at Holyrood, to dine with him and the Duchess, Princess May of Modena. But as this was, we are told, what might be called a family dinner, the Duchess demurred to the general being admitted to such an honour, whereupon he naively replied that this was not his first introduction to the House of Este, for that he had known Her Royal Highness's father, the Duke of Modena, 
and that he had stood behind his chair while he sat by the emperor's side. There was another kind of banquet, in which it has been remarked the defunct had the principal honours, having the same ceremonious respect paid to his waxen image as though he were alive. Thus we are reminded how the famous Henrietta, Duchess of Marlborough, demonstrated her appreciation for Congreve in a most extraordinary manner. Report goes that she had his figure made in wax, talked to it as if it had been alive, placed it at the table with her, took every care that it was supplied with different sorts of meat, and, in short, the same formalities were, throughout, scrupulously observed in these weird and strange repasts, just as if Congreve himself had been present. Saint-Foy, it may be remembered, who wrote in the time of Louis the Fourteenth, has left an interesting account of the ceremonial after the death of a king of France, during the forty days before the funeral, when his wax effigy lay in state. It appears that the royal officers served him at meals as though he was still alive. The maître d'hôtel handed the napkin to the highest lord present to be delivered to the king, a prelate blessed the table, and the basins of water were handed to the royal armchair. Grace was said in the accustomed manner, save that there was added to it the de profundis. We cannot be surprised that such strange proceedings as these gave rise to much ridicule, and helped to bring the court itself into contempt. End of chapter 4